left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Good answer. Good questions. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, Oh, boy, an all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, It is uh, another one of those days when all of our best-laid plans for today, things that we had hoped to cover, uh, have now been tossed out due to breaking and, frankly, tragic events across the globe over the weekend and into today. The president also spoke from the White House within the past hour. We will have his full address on the fall of Kabul and, uh, amid the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. That'll be here shortly for you. Uh, we had been closely covering Uh, When we wrapped up last week, closely covering the theft, the copy, the download of several hard drives from the Mesa County, Colorado, far right wing nut county clerk, Tina Perkins office. Perkins appeared at pillow guy Mike Lindell's so-called cyber uh, symposium last week, where the absolute proof that China hacked and stole the 2020 election from Donald Trump was finally to be revealed. But alas, it never was. Uh, But someone did release copies of these hard drives containing the code base of the Dominion Election, Dominion Voting Systems Election Management System, or EMS. Uh, Released it for download into the wild, as we confirmed with one of the world's top voting system and cybersecurity experts last week on this show. Um, 
an expert who was actually at Lindell's forum uh, to witness it, not to participate it participate in it. In any event, since then, I've been speaking with experts and election officials to try and determine how troubling this is that this software is now out in the wild, particularly as Dominion's EMS is currently in use in the ongoing California gubernatorial recall election in about 60 percent of the state. So far, to my knowledge, neither Colorado's Secretary of State Jenna Griswold nor California's Secretary of State Dr. Shirley Weber, both Democrats, uh, to my knowledge, neither of them have issued statements on this very serious security breach that the national media, for some reason, has yet to really notice. I'd hope to speak with an expert on that uh, today and what it means for California's election going on right now. Even as at the very same time, new information was revealed uh, about very serious vulnerabilities in those Dominion touchscreen systems, uh, as discovered by an expert witness in a long running federal lawsuit against those uh, machines in Georgia. So you couple all of that together. For those of us paying attention uh, who understand voting systems, uh, this is a very troubling uh, development, a very troubling concern right now. And to date, I seem to be the only so-called national media actually covering it. So I do hope to cover it more in the days ahead, even though I had to cancel my expert uh, guest today because of everything going on. Unfortunately, we've got to turn everything over to the uh, Tragic breaking news from over the weekend and into today around the globe from Haiti to Kabul, Afghanistan, where horrific scenes of Afghanis clinging to departing military planes at the Kabul airport as the uh, Taliban has now retaken the capital city. Uh, while U.S. troops finally pull out after our two trillion dollar 20 year war there, our longest ever. Uh, all of this has been uh, nightmarishly tragic. If time allows, I hope to open the phones in a little bit at 818-985-5735 for your thoughts on whether Joe Biden made a mistake in keeping Donald Trump's agreement with the Taliban and the Afghan government to finally pull out altogether. Donald Trump had agreed for us to leave by May 1. Um, Joe Biden uh, has us leaving altogether by the end of this month. 818-985-KPFK. If you want to queue up right now on the uh, phone lines, please feel free. Uh, you may have to hold for a bit because we have a lot to get to before we get to the phones, uh, including first yet more unspeakable tragedy somewhat closer to home uh, this weekend, a day after Saturday's monster magnitude 7.2 earthquake killed now at least 1,400 people. Desi Doyen, I think we're up to uh, 1,400 overall. Yes, uh, the updated death so toll far? about an hour ago mm. was 1,419 with at least 6,000 injured. Yep. Uh, so a day after that uh, earthquake on Saturday, the main airport of the uh, city of Lakai was overwhelmed on Sunday with people trying to evacuate their loved ones to Port-au-Prince, the capital, which is about 80 miles east of Lakai, um, with just a few dozen doctors available in the region. That is home to some one million people. The quake aftermath was becoming increasingly dire over the past 24 to 48 hours. 
Dr. Edward Destine, an orthopedic surgeon, waving toward a temporary operating room of corrugated tin set up near the airport, told the New York Times, quote, I would like to operate on 10 people today, but I just don't have the supplies. He said, listing an urgent need right now for intravenous drips and even the most basic antibiotics. The authorities in uh, Haiti were scrambling to coordinate their response to the quake, mindful of the confusion that followed the one in 2010 when delays in distributing aid to hundreds of thousands of people worsened the death toll. Officials said more than 7,000 homes were destroyed, nearly 5,000 damaged from the quake, leaving some 30,000 families homeless at this hour. Hospital, schools, offices, and churches, which might otherwise be used as shelters, which are about to be needed very much, uh, also were destroyed or badly damaged. The uh, prime minister there, Ariel Henry, declared a one-month state of emergency for the whole country and said that the uh, that first government aid convoys had started moving help to areas where towns were destroyed and hospitals overwhelmed. Um, this has been uh, this this has been a region that has run into these problems before big time. Back in 2010, there was an earthquake that ravaged Haiti's capital. It killed tens of thousands. So uh, we are a little bit more than a decade on, but now the country is facing political instability with the recent assassination of its president, rising gang violence, alarmingly high rates of malnutrition among children, and yes, the COVID-19 pandemic, for which uh, Haiti has just received about half a million vaccine doses, despite requiring far more than that. Desi Doyen, I know you've been uh, following this closely and the incoming storm as if things weren't bad enough already in Haiti. I know you've been following it closely. What else do you have for us today as everything is once again happening all at once today? Yes. Um, I just want to underscore that all of the main hospitals are damaged and that there's only about 30 doctors serving in the entire western region of the island. Um, and they also are being forced, local officials have said, uh, have told the U.N. Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, they have told them that they've had to negotiate with local gangs to allow passage of two Two humanitarian convoys a day through the area, and that was already before the earthquake. So as far as aid being organized, the U.N. World Food Program is sending food supplies via trucks. UNICEF said they are sent that the humanitarian needs are acute. They have uh, many Haitians urgently, urgently needing medical care, clean water and shelter, and children separated from their parents also need protection. Um, the United States Agency for International Development, that's USAID, they've sent a search and rescue team. The U.S. Coast Guard said it has deployed helicopters to also provide humanitarian aid and help airlift people to hospitals in Port-au-Prince. The Pan American Health Organization sent experts to coordinate medical support, and UNICEF is uh, distributing medical supplies to hospitals. And I see that, you know, you mentioned U.S. aid sending in uh, um, aircraft and, and ships being sent. They, too, are going to have to grapple with this incoming storm right now. Yes, that's all being complicated by Tropical Depression Grace. And Grace is already dumping rain across Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And 
this is the hardest part. The track of Grace is in the worst possible location for the earthquake victims. It is tracking almost directly over, Ugh. or at least, you know, within miles, the yeah. center of the storm, within miles of the epicenter of the earthquake. So it's it's hitting already right now. And of course, families are sleeping outside in order to avoid uh, aftershocks or their house mm-hmm. is falling down mm-hmm. in an aftershock or their homes are completely destroyed or very seriously damaged. And Grace is going to make that much much, much worse with strong winds, heavy rain, landslides, mudslides, and flash floods. They're expecting rainfall as much as 15 inches in some areas. So uh, there's ways that you can help. Oh, good. If what? we have time for this. Go ahead, That's please. Like great. So yeah. ways that you can help. You can donate to various uh, big organizations. What they really need now are cash donations. Cash money is the most helpful way to help speed supply delivery to affected areas. They do not... It, you might want to send physical supplies, but please don't because these cause huge logistical problems for people on the ground. So care.org, savethechildren.org, unicef.org, Daughters, doctorswithoutborders.org. Um, the Global Red Cross Network said they have activated their emergency response. So it's going to be the, the National International Red Cross and Red Crescent. And also there are a couple of USA, U.S.-based um, organizations, hopeforhaiti.com mm-hmm. and another organization called Haiti. At Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Unfortunately, full team coverage here today uh, on the broadcast because and we can't there's even give it so much going on. Because no, there's so much. Yeah, uh, at least we're giving it shrift because uh, there has been so much going on today, so much being covered out of Afghanistan, which we'll get to in a moment as well. But before we turn to that mess, uh, Des, since you mentioned uh, Haiti already struggling to deal with the COVID pandemic and their lack of vaccine there, uh, while we have uh, more vaccine in this country than we can put into people's arms right now, Uh, And especially in a number of GOP run states that have actually been throwing away tens of thousands of doses due to so many who have uh, been so disinformed about the vaccine for largely political reasons that they are not taking it and they are dying in the bargain. But never mind the vaccines in Florida and Texas. They have authoritarian governors there who are forbidding even mask mandates at the local level for governments or even schools where children younger than 12 cannot take vaccines at this time. Even as children are now being hospitalized and placed onto ventilators in record numbers in many of these states and hospitals are reaching or exceeding capacity altogether due to the highly transmittable Delta variant. But um, that's right. These Republican so-called conservative governors who have pretended for years that smaller local government is better because those on the ground, they know the needs of their residents, their constituents the best. Those Republican governors are still barring those local governments and even school districts from mandating face coverings. That, of course, is because they are not conservatives, as they will tell you that they are. In fact, they are authoritarians. On Friday, Business Insider reported two teachers and a teaching assistant in Florida's Broward County died from COVID-19 within a span of 24 hours. According to the Broward Teachers Union, all three had worked at elementary schools, you know, where kids under 12 cannot get vaccinated and where Governor Ron DeSantis has barred the district from requiring masks for children. 
All three of those uh, uh, teachers and teaching assistants were also unvaccinated. The two teachers were 48 years old. The teaching assistant was 49. They were uh, on summer break when they caught the virus. They died just as the school year was about to begin, according to the uh, union president. Anna Fusco told NBC Miami, quote, it really hits because we've been in this conversation about masking up in schools, our own elected governor acting like masks are not necessary. Earlier last week, the Broward County Public School Board defied DeSantis and his ban on uh, uh, mask mandates. They voted eight to one to require staff members to wear face coverings amid the record breaking spike in the uh, coronavirus cases in the state. After DeSantis threatened to withhold paychecks of school officials who made uh, masks mandatory, uh, the uh, one of the board members there said, bring it. She was more concerned about protecting the children than protecting her paycheck. Good for her. A representative for DeSantis told Business Insider that uh, the governor wanted to protect parents' rights to choose whether their kids should wear masks. Well, cool. What about the rights of the parents to choose not to expose their children to possible death unnecessarily? Do they get any rights here? A school district in Marion County, which is located about four hours from Broward, um, Near uh, Orlando, they reported Friday that four members of its teaching staff had also died from COVID-19. Last week, more than 800 Florida physicians signed an open letter to DeSantis urging him to revise his policy. The doctor's letter uh, letter noted this past week, COVID-19, quote, has infected more than 19,000 Floridians every day. The worst weekly infection rate since the pandemic began and hospitalized uh, uh, hospitalizations averaged 1,800 Floridians daily. In the last week of July, they write at least 35 children were hospitalized every single day for COVID-19 in Florida. They say that number is very likely an undercount since Governor DeSantis stopped sharing COVID-19 statistics. A number of school districts in the Sunshine State, nonetheless, are defying the governor, deciding that protecting children is more important than their paychecks. So thank you. The news, however, is as grim and pathetic in Texas, where authoritarian Governor Greg Abbott is trying apparently to out-Trump DeSantis. And he has an all-Republican state Supreme Court to back up his deadly edicts. The Texas Supreme Court on Sunday blocked masked mask mandates that were imposed by two of the state's most populous counties, They had defied Governor Greg Abbott's order banning the requirements. The order in Dallas and Bear counties, that's San Antonio, were issued after a lower court ruled last week in favor of local officials. You know, small government. And as COVID-19 cases surge in areas like Dallas, local government, local judges all want to protect their constituents. But big government, Governor Greg Abbott, won't allow them to do so. Very conservative of them. Don't you think, Desi Doyen, in your old home uh, hometown of Dallas? Well, I think you know what I think about that. Yes, and I think this is and FCC air. That's FCC right. You can't radio. say it. School districts in uh, Harris County, that's Houston. Tarrant County, that's Fort Worth. They have also defied Abbott's executive order as uh, kids head back to classes. The state attorney general's office, however, said in a statement on Sunday after the ruling from the 
all Republican state Supreme Court, um, those uh, that uh, this should serve, quote, as a reminder to all school districts and local officials that the governor's order stands, at least for now, pending a court hearing coming up. Um, the statement said, quote, local mask mandates are illegal. Got that? Uh, that statement from the office of Attorney General Ken Paxton in Texas, who I should remind you is himself under multiple indictments for securities fraud in the state, several felony charges, and he's also under federal investigation after seven of his own top members of his staff resigned en masse a few months ago and filed a criminal complaint alleging blackmail, bribery, other abuses of power uh, against Paxton, his own staff. But yeah, local mask mandates, those are illegal, says the state AG in Texas, to schools who are trying to keep their children from dying for the crime of going to school. Dallas County's chief executive, Judge Clay uh, Jenkins, who issued the mask mandate, said he intends to win the court hearing. He said, we won't stop working with parents and doctors, schools, businesses and others. Officials in San Antonio in Bear County released a similar statement on Sunday and said mask mandates for schools and city buildings will remain in effect as officials defend the mandate in court. Health authorities and university researchers have said, of course, that masks are an effective way to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Abbott has argued, however, that his executive order prohibiting mandates allows Texans to rely on personal responsibility rather than government mandates. So that's the idiocy that we are dealing with in this country as the rest of the world, many of them without access to vaccines at all, and now without a functioning government in Afghanistan. The rest of the world is doing whatever they can to stay alive. We seem to be making things worse. The fall of Kabul in Afghanistan at the end of America's longest war, that's next on the broadcast as President Biden addresses the nation. That and your calls, I hope, at 818-985-5735 on whether you believe President Biden has done the right thing here in pulling America out once and for all. All of that is coming up on the broadcast on another dark day, I'm afraid. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Broadcast Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Thousands of Afghans desperate to flee the besieged nation poured onto the runways at Kabul's International Airport on Monday and swarmed a departing U.S. military jet as Afghanistan plunged deeper into chaos one day after the government collapsed on Sunday. At least seven people died in the mayhem at the airport. Senior U.S. military officials said the uh, dead included some who fell from a U.S. military transport jet as it departed 
Hamid Karzai International Airport. Video footage showed people clinging to the sides of a military plane as it taxied. U.S. troops killed two people, both of them armed, during the pandemonium. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said there was no indication that the individuals killed were members of the Taliban, the Islamic militant group whose swift takeover of the country amid the withdrawal of American forces is said to have stunned U.S. officials, though I'm not really sure why it should have, given what we already knew was underway in the in the uh, country over the past year and a half or so since Donald Trump's agreement with the Taliban last year to pull out all U.S. forces by May 1 of this year. Reporting this weekend by The Washington Post makes clear that the Taliban a year and a half ago, immediately upon Trump's announcement that the U.S. would be pulling out, they began cutting deals with with local and then regional and then uh, provincial governments to turn over the weapons and to stand down. Uh, The Washington Post, Susanna George uh, on uh, Sunday uh, reported the deals initially offered early last year. That would be in 2020, you know, when the other guy was uh, president. They were often described by Afghan officials as ceasefires. But Taliban leaders were, in fact, offering money in exchange for government forces to hand over their weapons, according to an Afghan officer and a U.S. official. They were paying They were paying off officials to leave, and they did. That culminated uh, in the Afghan president fleeing the country over the weekend and what we have seen unfold over the past 24 hours in its wake. U.S. troops sought to control the bedlam at the airport, which started when huge crowds of Afghans rushed through the civilian side of the facility, flooding the military landing strip and swarmed a U.S. Air Force C-17 as it taxied on a runway. Some 2,500 troops were positioned at the airport. Another 500 will arrive by Tuesday, said Kirby. In all, about 6,000 Americans will be at the airport. One of America's top military commanders met face-to-face with senior leaders of the Taliban, urging the longtime enemy not to interfere with the evacuations at the airport as the U.S. withdraws after a nearly 20-year war. That, according to the Associated Press, General Frank McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command, warned Taliban officials that the U.S. military would forcefully respond to defend the airport if necessary. Troops are trying to set up barriers to separate the military portion of the airport from the civilian terminal and its landing strip. There had not been any separation previously, no physical barrier uh, between those two operations. An additional 3,000 troops were expected to arrive in Kabul in the next few days to help. U.S., Turkish and other allied troops were clearing the field to allow flights to resume again soon. President Biden Uh, Meanwhile, has faced harsh criticism for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan and the pandemonium that ensued. Um, I want to uh, play his remarks today and then we'll open up the phone lines. uh, 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK. For your thoughts on uh, all of this, what he did, was it the right thing? Despite what we are now seeing in uh, in Afghanistan, Joe Biden spoke to the nation. I want to play his remarks and then we'll get to your calls. He spoke to the nation from the White House on Monday afternoon uh, after returning from a weekend at Camp David on what happened and where the U.S. goes from here as the president stood by his decision 
to pull all American troops, all of the American troops from Afghanistan in advance of September 11, next month, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, vowing that he would not pass this war on to a fifth U.S. president. Here are Joe Biden's remarks just over an hour ago from the White House. Good afternoon. I want to speak today to the unfolding situation in Afghanistan, the developments that have taken place in the last week, and the steps we're taking to address the rapidly evolving events. My national security team and I have been closely monitoring the situation on the ground in Afghanistan and moving quickly to execute the plans we had put in place to respond to every constituency, including and contingency, including the rapid collapse we're seeing now. I'll speak more in a moment about the specific steps we're taking, but I want to remind everyone how we got here and what America's interests are in Afghanistan. We went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. I've argued for many years that our mission should be narrowly focused on counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency or nation-building. That's why I opposed the surge when it was proposed in 2009 when I was vice president. And that's why, as president, I'm adamant that we focus on the threats we face today in 2021, not yesterday's threats. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized well beyond Afghanistan. Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Nusra in Syria, ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates in multiple countries in Africa and Asia. These threats warrant our attention and our resources. We conduct effective counterterrorism missions against terrorist groups in multiple countries where we don't have permanent military presence. If necessary, we'll do the same in Afghanistan. We've developed counterterrorism over-the-horizon capability that will allow us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on the direct threats to the United States in the region and act quickly and decisively if needed. When I came into office, I inherited a deal that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban. Under his agreement, U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021 just a little over three months after I took office. U.S. forces had already drawn down during the Trump administration from roughly 15,500 American forces to 2,500 troops in country. And the Taliban was at its strongest militarily since 2001. The choice I had to make as your president 
was either to follow through on that agreement or be prepared to go back to fighting the Taliban in the middle of the spring fighting season. There would have been no ceasefire after May 1. There was no agreement protecting our forces after May 1. There was no status quo of stability without American casualties after May 1. There was only the cold reality of either following through on the agreement to withdraw our forces or escalating the conflict and sending thousands more American troops back into combat in Afghanistan, lurching into the third decade of conflict. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency, but I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force with some 300,000 strong, incredibly well equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their Air Force, something the Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an Air Force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. There's some very brave and capable Afghan special forces units and soldiers. But if Afghanistan is unable to mount any real resistance to the Taliban now, there is no chance that one year, one more year, five more years, or 20 more years, of U.S. military boots in the ground would have made any difference. And here's what I believe to my core. It is wrong to order American troops to step up on Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. If the political leaders of Afghanistan were unable to come together for the good of their people, unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down, they would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan, bearing the brunt of the fighting for them. And our true strategic competitors, China and Russia, would love nothing more than the United States to continue to funnel billions of dollars in resources and attention into stabilizing Afghanistan indefinitely. 
When I hosted President Ghani and Chairman Abdullah at the White House in June, and again when I spoke by phone to Ghani in July, we had very frank conversations. We talked about how Afghanistan should prepare to fight their civil wars after the U.S. military departed, to clean up the corruption in government so that the government could function for the Afghan people. We talked extensively about the need for Afghan leaders to unite politically. They failed to do any of that. I also urged them to engage in diplomacy, to seek a political settlement with the Taliban. This advice was flatly refused. Mr. Ghani insisted that the Afghan forces would fight, but obviously he was wrong. So I'm left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States, of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat because we have significant vital interest in the world that we cannot afford to ignore. I also want to acknowledge how painful this is to so many of us. The scenes we're seeing in Afghanistan, they're gut-wrenching, particularly for our veterans, our diplomats, humanitarian workers, for anyone who has spent time on the ground working to support the Afghan people, for those who have lost loved ones in Afghanistan, and for Americans who have fought and served in the country, serve our country in Afghanistan. This is deeply, deeply personal. It is for me as well. I've worked on these issues as long as anyone. I've been throughout Afghanistan during this war, while the war was going on, from Kabul to Kandahar to the Kunar Valley. I've traveled there on four different occasions. I met with the people. I've spoken to the leaders. I spent time with our troops. And I came to understand firsthand what was and was not possible in Afghanistan. So now we're focused on what is possible. We will continue to support the Afghan people. We will lead with our diplomacy, our international influence, and our humanitarian aid. We'll continue to push for regional diplomacy and engagement to prevent violence and instability. We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, of women and girls, just as we speak out all over the world. I've been clear the human rights must be the center of our foreign policy not the periphery. But the way to do it is not through endless military deployments. It's with our diplomacy, our economic tools, and rallying the world to join us. Let me lay out the current mission in Afghanistan. 
I was asked to authorize, and I did, 6,000 U.S. troops to deploy to Afghanistan for the purpose of assisting in the departure of U.S. and allied civilian personnel from Afghanistan and to evacuate our Afghan allies and vulnerable Afghans to safety outside of Afghanistan. Our troops are working to secure the airfield and to ensure continued operation of both the civilian and military flights. We're taking over air traffic control. We have safely shut down our embassy and transferred our diplomats. Our, di our diplomatic presence is now consolidated at the airport as well. Over the coming days, we intend to transport out thousands of American citizens who have been living and working in Afghanistan. We'll also continue to support the safe departure of civilian personnel, the civilian personnel of our allies who are still serving in Afghanistan. Operation Allies Refugee, which I announced back in July, has already moved 2,000 Afghans who are eligible for special immigration visas and their families to the United States. In the coming days, the U.S. military will provide assistance to move, to move more SIV-eligible Afghans and their families out of Afghanistan. We're also expanding refugee access to cover other vulnerable Afghans who worked for our embassy. U.S. non-governmental agencies or uh, U.S. non-governmental organizations and Afghans who otherwise are at great risk in U.S. news agencies. I know there are concerns about why we did not begin evacuating Afghans civilians sooner. Part of the answer is some of the Afghans did not want to leave earlier, still hopeful for their country. And part of it because the Afghan government and its supporters discouraged us from organizing a mass exodus to avoid triggering, as they said, a crisis of confidence. American troops are performing this mission as professionally and as effectively as they always do, but it is not without risks. As we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Our current military mission will be short in time, limited in scope, and focused in its objectives. Get our people and our allies to safely as quickly as possible. And once we have completed this mission, we will conclude our military withdrawal. We will end America's longest war after 20 long years of bloodshed. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. You have to be honest. Our mission in Afghanistan has taken many missteps, made many missteps over the past two decades. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan. Two Democrats and two Republicans. 
I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. Nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. I'm deeply saddened by the facts we now face. But I do not regret my decision to end America's war fighting in Afghanistan and maintain a laser focus on our counterterrorism missions there and other parts of the world. Our mission to degrade the terrorist threat of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and kill Osama bin Laden was a success. Our decades-long effort to overcome centuries of history and permanently change and remake Afghanistan was not, and I wrote and believed it never could be. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight on endlessly in another, in another country's civil war, taking casualties, suffering life-shattering injuries, leaving families broken by grief and loss. This is not in our national security interest. It is not what the American people want. It is not what our troops, who have sacrificed so much over the past two decades, deserve. I made a commitment to the American people when I ran for president that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. While it's been hard and messy, and yes, far from perfect, I've honored that commitment. More importantly, I made a commitment to the brave men and women who serve this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives in a military action that should have ended long ago. Our leaders did that in Vietnam when I got here as a young man. I will not do it in Afghanistan. I know my decision will be criticized, but I would rather take all that criticism than pass this decision on to another President of the United States, yet another one, a fifth one. Because it's the right one, it's the right decision for our people. The right one for our brave service members who risk their lives serving our nation. And it's the right one for America. Thank you. May God protect our troops, our diplomats, and all brave Americans serving in harm's way. That was President Joe Biden speaking at the White House on Monday afternoon after the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban and chaos at the airport in Kabul as the U.S. leaves the uh, nation after 20 years of war. Joe Biden standing by his decision to leave by the end of the month, keeping the agreement that Donald Trump had committed the U.S. to. Uh, last year, though, uh, Trump's deal would have had us withdraw by May 1 of this year. So uh, was Biden's decision the right thing? If not, what would have been the right decision on Afghanistan? How much longer than 20 years should we have stayed there? I don't know how many times I've said on air and off. I have no idea what we were actually doing there. I don't even know what the mission is anymore. And I've spoken or heard from countless Afghan vets who didn't seem to know either not when they were in the country or even after leaving. 
So uh, I'd also love to hear from some of those uh, Afghan vets, if you have a chance. Uh, I'd love to hear from uh, anyone with thoughts today on this. 818-985-5735. If the mission was simply to prop up the Afghan government, the entire nation, should we simply have made Afghanistan a U.S. protectorate and stayed there indefinitely? Because that does seem to be like the only alternative at this point. Anyway, 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. Your calls are next right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. By the way, you can also tweet me. I am the Brad Blog. Uh, Let's go right to your calls since we're already running late on uh, Afghanistan. Let's go to, uh, where am I here? Mike in Los Angeles. Hey, Mike, welcome to the broadcast. Did Joe Biden do the right thing? Uh, yes, he did. But to answer your question from last week, how does Mike Lindell sleep at night? <laughs> he sleeps on imported cotton sheets because he brags in his commercials that he is too unpatriotic to not buy from a foreign military dictatorship. I see. Apparently to maintain his status in the Benedict Arnold party. I see. But as for Mr. Biden's decision, yeah. uh, he understands what his predecessor never understood, that your sacred honor is a commodity worth a lot more than money. Mm. If you are known to keep your word, you can actually accomplish things. If they don't trust anything you say, you cannot. If we had stayed in the Iran nuclear deal, the Middle East might be a much mm. more secure place than it is today. Mm. So hard as it is for him politically, I applaud Mr. Biden for keeping the agreement which his predecessor made. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that call and I appreciate its brevity because I ran late, but I want to try to get to as many folks as I can here. So let me uh, go to John in Sun Valley. Hey, John, welcome to the broadcast. Did Joe Biden do the right thing? Uh, well, yeah. Surprise, surprise, though. Uh, war country that we live in uh, knows how to war but doesn't know how to peace. Well, uh, and and John, your break it. Your your phone is not real good. Your connection. You said we know how to war, but we don't know how to peace. Is that what you said, John? Absolutely. Okay. I got. I'm sorry. I gotta let you go, John. I really am, but it's really breaking up, and I can't understand uh, what you're saying. I'm sorry. Uh, let me go to Steve in Altadena. Hey, Steve. Welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks. Um, I'd like to uh, just briefly point out an an inaccuracy, an almost universal misunderstanding of your imperial situation. Afghanistan is not the United States' longest war. What is America's longest war? There was never a peace treaty signed with North Korea. There was an armistice. An armistice is not the end of a war. Okay. Longest active war. Longest hot war, I guess. Longest firing war, Steve. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll uh, I'll the point. Okay. Because I'd like to really address... I think it's related to another thing. 
you, at times like this, your most recent imperial adventure has collapsed. The first thing everybody asks is, what do we do next? In this case, I think it would be good to start with what you did first. Your involvement in Afghanistan started in 1979, and it was largely the handiwork of Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was uh, an anti-Soviet zealot and who saw an opportunity, an opening, when the socialist government declared its intention, a, a, a junta, I, mm. I hasten to say it was a junta, it was a military junta, yeah. but it declared its intention of bringing women to, into parity with men in every public sphere of life. And Steve, I hate to... I hate to... I, I'm actually enjoying your historical perspective here, but I'm literally running up against the clock, and I am okay. very sorry okay. about that. Know where, the, know where your story begins. Okay, very quickly, Steve. You you say you you're referring to Steve. Steve, you 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 refer to you keep saying uh, your war. Are you American? Yeah. Okay, so this is our war, isn't it? That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, it's all of our Steve. I got to run, brother. I'm. I am sorry. I literally am up against the clock. Uh, as the rest of the callers will find out here shortly, whether I like it or not. Roger in Minneapolis. Very quickly, Roger. Good to see from you. Hear from you. Did uh, Joe Biden do the right? Is Joe Biden doing the right thing here? Well, I don't want to give too many kudos to Joe Biden as any kind of pacifist. But he definitely did the right thing by pulling out of Afghanistan. That should have happened long ago. Okay. Uh, I remember. I remember that. Oh, we're just. We're having no luck on the phone today, Roger. I am so sorry. I did hear you say you thought he did the right thing, uh, but then the phone is crackling like crazy, and I don't know if this is our end or on the caller's end, but. Uh, thanks, Roger. I gotta, I gotta let you go for now. Uh, on the bright side, I do have another Roger in standby, uh, as is always helpful. Roger in Studio City. Hey, Roger. Uh, very quickly, my friend. Uh, did Joe Biden do the right thing here? Well, it's obvious. My question is this: Why well, didn't do the right thing to begin with? Uh, the major reason they invaded Afghanistan was because they have the largest amount of lithium in the world, next to Bolivia, and we're going to batteries. So. What the Chinese did in northern Afghanistan was to make the biggest copper mine in the world. Uh-huh. They invested a trillion dollars. It's a 174 miles by 70 miles by 14 miles deep. They have made a $4 trillion profit. You're talking about China, right? Yeah. Where? Why, in, why didn't we just invest in, yeah. in, northern, in northern Afghanistan? Why did we not invade? Why didn't we invest into the lithium and basically utilize the country for what their natural resources rather than fight? Thanks, Roger. Chinese just pay them off. I got gotcha. you. I hear you. Thanks, Roger. I do appreciate that. Do I have time for one more here? Maybe I think I can try. Let me go to Michael in Claremont. Hey, Michael. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for taking my call. You know what? I believe he did the right thing. I think the Afghani people that were in the military are spineless, and they deserve everything they get. Mm going to be zero. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. There's a lot of people there who do not deserve what they are going to get. Uh, do I have 15 seconds for the other Roger, for the uh, first Roger? 15 seconds. Roger, call back on the better line. Quick, go. Literally 15. Okay. Here, here it is. 
I had my 43rd birthday on the 7th of October, and it broke my heart when the Bush administration used 9-11 as an excuse to go and murder a whole lot of people. And I never thought it would turn out any, any way different than it is. And it just, it just breaks my heart. We get lied to so much. We do indeed. Thank you, Roger. And a belated, 20 years belated, happy birthday. We got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, on a very busy news day. My uh, uh, engineer, Federico Garcia, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Missed any sh- portion of it? Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I'm the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you here tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Bye.